morning, greeting in Jesus' name. The last opportunity I had to preach here, I was surprised to have Brother Chad Brubaker come, so he took that appointment for me, and I thought with all the preachers at that wedding yesterday, I'd find one that was spending the night in the area, but I didn't, so I get to share with you this morning. So seek an interest in your prayers this morning. Uh, you're praying for someone who's sharing is important. I'm learning that more and more as I grow older. Uh, you can feel it when there's prayers and you're sharing from the Word of God. As I promised the last time I preached here that I will begin working through a sermon request that have came uh, since I gave an invitation for that some six or eight months ago. The topic I have this morning was the most requested topic. Most, more people of this nature than any other topic. Anyone care to guess what the topic may be? I'll read you some of the suggestions. Philip, we need a whole message on be ye kind one to another. Philip, we need a whole message on the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Philip, have we lost the basic principles of Christianity, love, kindness, forbearance, edification, building each other up in the faith, getting rid of unkindness, slander, gossip, and negative talk about each other? Don't throw this one out. I've been working on it for some time. Is gossip and negative talk an addiction that we don't recognize it for what it is? And I've pretty well concluded that concern is valid. You see, addictions are coping mechanisms that have gotten out of control. If a person's addiction is tobacco, when they come under stress, they either chain smoke or binge dip or something like that. If a person's addiction is drugs, when they come under pressure, they'll reach for it. If an addiction is alcohol, they'll go to that when under stress. And the newer addiction of pornography, people go to that when they're under stress. It's a coping mechanism. And this one really challenged me. How often have I been stressed about something or upset about something that happened, and my reaction was to go to somebody or call somebody and kind of vent? I believe the person had a, 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 a concern that we ought to consider. Is gossip and negative talk an addiction that we don't recognize for what it is? And these suggestions and requests came from both brothers and sisters of various ages. And I thank you for your requests and concerns because I needed this study more than I'm probably anyone else. Multiple times, even this morning, again, I had to put my head on my desk and repent. When I see how much the Word of God has to say about our speech as Christians. Let's go to Psalm 19. This passage was Referred to, I believe, in suggestion, or at least alluded to. Psalm 19 and verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. So, verses 7 through 11 is God's standard. 
And he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the ears. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, yeah, than much fine gold. Sweeter are they than honey, than honey. Call moreover by them is thy servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So verses 7 through 11 is God's standard. And the psalmist is viewing that. And then in verses 12 through 14, he begins to do introspection into his own life. And notice these verses that follow his view of God's standard. Who can understand his errors? That's personally. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Lord, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So the psalmist here is saying, I see God's standard. I look at God's standard in the mirror, and I see the reflection of what it ought to be. And I look at my own life, and I cry out and say, Lord, keep me back from intentional sin. Keep me back from from those things that have dominion over me. We've talked about these addictions, these coping mechanisms that overtake our lives. And out of that, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And we'll see that again and again and again. When God looks into the heart and we see ourselves from who we are, we notice our need of a cleansed mouth. Isaiah faced that. He said, Lord, I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Peter, before Jesus, said, Lord, away from me. I'm a sinful man. We'll talk about Zacchaeus later as well. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4. That was mentioned in request. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We won't develop the whole chapter. I therefore, the presence of the Lord, beseech ye that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called. So, this chapter starts with reminding us that we are called to a vocation. A vocation is a pursuit in life. It's what you do. That is in contrast to the old story that you often, I've heard many times about this person went to revival meetings and became a Christian, went home and put a picture of Jesus beside his idols. It doesn't work that way. When we become a Christian, it changes everything, as we'll see later in 2 Corinthians. Everything becomes new. So he's saying, I beseech you that you walk in a way that's worthy of your new vocation of being a child of God, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's saying, in this vocation, in this walk of life, there needs to be a change of heart. It's a heart of lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. And the drive of our lives in this new vocation must be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's keep that foremost in our minds. Does every word that I speak, that you hear me speak, in private, 
would it fit in to the third verse? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called, and one hope, if you're calling one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to everyone is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, he said, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But he has also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same that also has ascended far above all heavens that he might fit all things, fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Keep that in mind. All the gifts that are given are for the edifying of the body of Christ. And how long do we do this? Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of Man to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that is the goal, to become mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, with every sleight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Okay? Deception on the other side. But we, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is ahead, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, that by which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. Edifying again. So we said edifying the body of Christ. Now we see that edifying is done through love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, the meditation of their heart, their mind. Having their understanding darkened, mind, being alienated from God, through the, from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, mind, heart, who being past filling have given them no compassion, have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all in cleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, have been taught by him as the truth in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, that old way of life, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, it's, it's the mind and the heart. And ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, therefore put away, notice, lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Verse 29. Now, this is the transformed mind. This is the mind that's, that's living out of our new vocation of being a child of God. Let all bitterness, no, let, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That is, any unwholesome communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So, the Word of God... The Spirit of God and the Word of God is showing us here that our verbal exchanges as a child of God is now brought down into a relatively narrow drive. 
and that is only that which is good to the use of edifying. And edifying is that which builds up, encourages, and challenges. That it may minister grace to the hearers. So when you go away from a conversation with another believer, you're encouraged, you're edified, you're built up, and it's a graceful exchange. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed in the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness, all wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's anything less than kindness. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And the challenge that I've come back to, and I've been working on this for some months, time and again in this message and preparing for it is that when the Bible speaks about the transformation of conversion from unbeliever to believer, one of the main thrusts is the change of our speech, the change of the way we talk and what we share and what type of things we share and how we share it. It says, all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all evil speaking, and all malice has to be put away. And it has to be replaced with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, because of what God has done for us for Christ's sake. He has forgiven us. So, that, I think the, the last three verses, or maybe four, five, six, eight verses here of Ephesians 4 is where a number of the requests came from for the message, and I appreciate that, and we'll continue to maybe refer back to this as we go further into the message. Now I invite you over to Matthew 15 and verse 10. Gospel of Matthew in verse 10. Here Jesus is having a dialogue with the multitude, and as he is wont to do after he walks away from the multitude, the disciples come to him privately and say, Lord, can you explain this to us? So, Matthew 15 and verse 10. And he called the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. And the disciples said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? And he said unto them, Every plant which the heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, they both shall fall into a ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, are ye also without understanding? Do you not understand that whatsoever entereth to the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and blasphemies. And these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. So the Pharisees were having problems with Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands ceremonially before they ate, and they it entered into this. And Jesus said, you know, it's really not whether you wash your hands before you eat. It's what proceeds out of your heart that defiles. Not only ourselves, 
but those around us. And I, I missed something back in Ephesians. It talked about uh, anger, and there's another passage that talks about not letting the sun go down upon our wrath. <laughs> in other words, we need to work through things that upset us before the sun go down and, and make peace and, and move on uh, with that. Proverbs chapter 4 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The Scripture keeps reminding us of the heart and the mind and the mouth. They're somewhat of a, a trinity, so to speak. Where one goes, it seems the other goes. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now, Proverbs 6 is another passage that is part of the study. Proverbs, the sixth chapter. I believe we'll drop in at verse 12. A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. That's a mouth that isn't controlled by the Spirit of God. He wingeth his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teaches with his fingers, frowardness in his heart, he deviseth mischief, he soweth discord. So, sowing discord is connected to an unconverted heart, mind, and mouth. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. I'll stop reading there at verse 19. Now let me, let me continue on. My son, keep thy father's commandments, forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually about thine heart, tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee, and when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee, and when thou wakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment, that's the commandment of the Lord, is a lamp, and the law is light, and the reproofs of instruction are a way of life. All right. Now, I want to introduce another thought into the message, and this is sins of the body parts. Whenever we sin in life, we're using a part of our physical body that God has given us with. We notice in verse 12, it talks about a proud look and a lying tongue and hands. So we have the appearance, the tongue, and the hands. Three sources of sin in verse 12. No, excuse me, not verse 12, but uh, verse 17. Then in verse 18, we have a heart that devises wicked imaginations and feet that are swift running to mischief. So we have the heart and mind there, and we have the feet. And in 19, we have a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among his brethren. And here again, we have the mouth and the heart. And I call that the sins of our body parts. So does God care about what comes out of our hearts and lives? Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace. It doesn't say most times. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, compatible, well-tasting, purified, salt purifies, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. So God isn't giving us uh, a break and saying, yeah, 75% of the time, it's always. 
Everything that comes out of our mouth should be edifying. It should be purifying. It should be purified, seasoned with salt, done with grace. Always. Let's go to James. You know, James talks about that most dangerous body part. James 1 and verse 19. Okay, in light of all we've looked at this morning, in light of what comes prior to this in James 1 about temptation, we come to verse 19 and he says, Wherefore, or in light of what we already know, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Reminds me again, not to let the sun go down your head. Don't let wrath or anger become an ongoing thing in our lives. Because anger is a bad catalyst for this little member in our mouth. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continuing there, and not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, he deceiveth his own heart, and this man's religion is in vain. This, this passage convicted me in a new way that irregardless of how religious we may appear, if my tongue isn't always with grace, seasoned with salt, working to edify, to build up the church, the Scripture says, my religion is in vain. It is of no value. Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fathers and widows in their infliction and keeps oneself unspotted from the world. And we've already looked at what the world is. It's the unregenerate heart, mind, mouth, etc. Let's go over to James 3. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and also able to bridle the whole body. We put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also ships, though they are so great, are driven by fierce winds, yet they are turned with a very small helm, wheresoever the governor listeth. And isn't that amazing? <laughs> you have this huge ship, and back then they went by sails, and... Uh, the sails would turn the sails and go the direction they wanted to if they had favorable winds. But down under the water was this little rudder that they could move back and forth and move that large ship. He says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Whoa. Our, my tongue can be a world of iniquity. So is the tongue amongst our members that defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For of every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and things in the sea is tamed, hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue no man can tame. It is unruly evil, full of deadly, deadly poison. I hope the Spirit of God can override that, and I believe He can. 
Therewith bless we God, even the Father. Wherewith curse we men, which we are made after the similitude of God. And I want to pick up on that a little bit later. We ought to take this seriously. How can we talk negative about another human being that is created in the likeness and the image of God for whom Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for, just the same as he died for me? How can we talk bad about someone else that God has given all that for? Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Can a fountain send forth at the same time both sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine fig? So can no fountain yield both salt and fresh water. And what we see here is he's saying either we have an artesian well of fresh water or we have an artesian well of bitter water like the children of Israel had to deal with in the desert. He said you can't have both. Yeah, we can say good and bad, but he said, in reality, your well is either bitter or it's sanctified. Who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show it out of a good conversation of his works with meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work." The book of Proverbs tells us that only by pride cometh contention. An older man recently talked to me about that. We were talking about a situation we were facing. And he said, Philip, remember, only by pride cometh contention. He said, that's scriptural. That's the basis of tension. And he said, a contention. And he's saying, dear people, what, what I'm seeing the scripture saying to us here is there's only two types of wisdom. And there's one type of wisdom that is earthly wisdom, it's devilish, it's from Satan, and out of that comes the artesian well through the tongue that brings strife and envy and all this stuff. But in verse 17 it says, but wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown of peace of them that make peace. So we have, James is talking to us about two sources of water, two, a bitter water and a sweet water, verse 11, sanctified water, unsanctified water. And then he goes on to say there's two types of wisdom, representative of each of the types of water. And the one wisdom, there's strife, there's all kinds of stress. And the other wisdom, there's peace, there's gentleness. There's mercy, there's good fruits, there's no partiality, there's no hypocrisy, there's no acting one way to someone's face and another way behind their back. There's none of that. And the fruit of righteousness is sown of peace to them that make peace. And James is calling us to allow the Spirit of God to sanctify our tongues, to cleanse our well of water, our artesian well, and to put us in the camp of the wisdom that is from above and is from God. I've reworked this several times, trying to find where to stop in, jump in again. You see, we all want to live in these last two verses of James, where there's peace, there's gentleness, 
We like to go into those types of social settings, and we go home feeling well after we've been there. But I've wrestled with this. Why do we struggle so much to always have that be our experience? Why were there so many requests for this message this morning? And I invite you to go with me to Titus, the third chapter. Titus, the third chapter. And we'll look at the first five verses. And Paul is writing to Titus, and he's telling Titus what he ought to teach in the church where he's at. He says, but put them in mind to be subject to principalities, to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Now, to speak evil of no man, be no brawlers, uh, slander no one, is what it's saying. Be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. He's saying, show true humility to all people. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deserve, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. So he's saying, we're back to the old artesian well, the bitter water, the unconverted life. Verse 4, where you find the but, then it changes. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man hath appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the eternal hope of life. So my... I remember once Dwayne Eby was preaching, and he said something. So here's this renowned evangelist, and, and he was preaching at meetings, and he said sometimes when he examines his own heart, he, he, he questions, am I even a Christian? <laughs> and I admit, as I study for this message, I've had to examine my heart and ask that same question. Am I even a Christian? When I see how far short I fall of living up to the standard at times in my life, of the changed life in the tongue, and how much how much it changes our lives. How serious is God about our speech? Revelation 22 and verse 14 following says this, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and they may enter in through the gates of the city. So those are the ones who are coming in. These are the ones who hear those words, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you, that none of us ever want to hear. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murders and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So that's the person, and, and the word lie here isn't necessarily saying, did you steal a pumpkin? And you say, no, I didn't when you actually did. It's, it's the word lie in the scripture can be something that, that taints something falsely as well. Someone has said a lie can be 99% true. Uh, it's, it's things that are tainted, and it says it's not only those who made it, but those who go along with it and promote it, maketh and loveth a lie. Those who approve of, that's what I'm looking for, those who approve of and do not challenge the dishonesty that they face. So how do we overcome the temptation to sin with our tongues? Let's go to 2 Corinthians. How do we overcome the temptation to sin with our tongues? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And by the way, the title of this message was the most requested topic, if you're wondering if I forgot to say what that is. How do we overcome temptation? How do we make a change and come out of this in our lives? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. And the word constrain here, I love that word. In the original, it's the idea of being caught up in a throng of people. They're going down a tight sidewalk, and you can't get out of it. It's, there's people in your left and right and front and rear, and everybody's moving, and you can't get out of it. So the love of Christ is compelling us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And here is the foundation for converting our, our artesian well from bitter to sweet water. We aren't living for ourselves. It's not about us. It's not a competition. It's building the kingdom. We don't live for ourselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Therefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. We don't view people anymore in a fleshly way of judging and, and guessing and whatever. Yea, though we had known Christ after the flesh, now henceforth know him no more. They once looked at Christ without seeing him for who he was, and now they look at things differently. And it says, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Everything changes. Down in the recesses of our heart and soul and being, that artesian well is changed from bitter water to sweet water, just like it was in the desert for the children of Israel when God intervened. All things now become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus, that had given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we experience complete death to self, our old sinful nature, the bitter water goes away, there's regeneration, there's repentance, regeneration, restitution, and reconciliation. So let's think a little bit about this. We have repentance, and there's no conversion without repentance. God be merciful to me, a sinner. We have regeneration, which is living in the Spirit of God and not, no longer responding out of the bitter water of the old artesian well. Then we have restitution, owning our wrongs and doing all we can to make it right. There was this gentleman by the name of Zacchaeus. Where is he at? Is he in Luke 19? Luke 19. I believe it is. Yes at the very beginning of chapter 19. You know, I won't read it, but we know the story. So Jesus is passing through Jericho, and there's a man, Zacchaeus, who was chief among the publicans. <laughs> he was a chief tax collector. He was a bad man. Uh, Pharisees didn't like him. Uh, so he took their money. And he wanted to see Jesus, but he was a little short man, so he ran ahead, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree because he couldn't get into the crowd. And when Jesus came to that place, verse 5, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Now this man's a sinner. He's, a, he's one of those tax collector fellows that were the Jewish people who were under bondage to the Romans in the Roman tax system. Unpopular as you get. And when they saw it, they murmured, saying that he is going to be a guest with a man that's a sinner. Now, notice Zacchaeus' response to having Jesus in his life. 
Okay? I don't know if Jesus said but Zacchaeus said this. I mean, Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. I don't know if Jesus said anything to him about his occupation. It doesn't record that he did. But simply being in the presence of Jesus made this dramatic transformation in his life. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto them, This day is salvation come into this house, forasmuch as he is also a son of Abraham. I've been challenged in you in this passage that when Jesus came in, when he came into the presence of Jesus, he was just like Isaiah in the presence of God or Peter in the presence of Jesus. He, he came to recognize himself for who he was and seen the need of his heart and said, Lord, I'll give half of everything I have to the people around me and all the people that I have taken too much from in taxes, I'm going to give back fourfold. That's restitution. And I've heard it said already at Ministers uh, Weeks that that's something that we haven't focused on as much as we probably should have. You know, if I wrong Brother Luke and I tell him I'm sorry, I've only gone halfway. I haven't went back. Let's say I say something very negative about Luke to another person. And later I'm convicted of it and, God, and I make it right. I can go to Luke and apologize. He can say, Philip, I forgive you. But if I haven't went to that person and that person and that person and confessed to them as well that I've sinned against Luke, I've only gone halfway. The Bible calls us to restitution for sins. And then there's reconciliation, doing everything we can to repair damaged relationships and reputations that have occurred out of doing everything we can to repair damaged relationships and reputations that have occurred from the sins of our tongues. And all of that together equals amendment of life. And we will have peace and joy if we do that. We will. We'll have peace and joy. I'm going back to 2 Corinthians 5 now. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18 and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus forgave on the cross. Okay, now we're, we're going to spend some time on verse 18. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We want to spend some time on that. What does that mean? Jesus hung on the cross, excruciating suffering, of them for they know not what they do. What all was Jesus doing in that setting? Well, first of all, he was setting himself free because he was forgiving, right? There's a man who died in May. His name was Dr. Tim Keller. Did a lot of writing and work on forgiveness. I'm not promoting his theology. He was a Presbyterian uh, Calvinist. But he's written some very challenging things on forgiveness. He says we've used forgiveness too much maybe as a way to benefit ourselves and not to build the kingdom. Because we're back again. 
If I've offended Brother Luke by speaking things about him that weren't edifying, and he forgives but I never come to him and make it right, my soul is still in trouble. And if he knows it, he has a responsibility to come to me and say, Brother Philip, I forgive you for what you've done to me, but I'm burdened that you haven't repented and made it right because you may not be on your way to heaven because of it. Okay? So when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. He set himself free. And sometimes we go that far and we stop there. But Jesus was also putting himself in a position to become the intercessor for the people who crucified him, right? That makes sense? He was becoming, the, he is now the person who's able to go to God and plead their case for the Spirit of God to woo them to accept him as their Savior in repentance and be part of the heavenly kingdom. So, so that is the ministry God has given us here in verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And I'm going to give you an illustration of what that looks like in real life. A uh, number of years ago, the American gymnastics team, maybe the Olympic team, I'm not sure, there was a Dr. Nazar, an evil fellow. He was violating these girls on the gymnastics team. And a girl by the name of Rachel Honey something, I forget her last name, uh, she brought him down, so to speak. She reported him, he was convicted, lost his job, and everything that went with that. But she wrote to him, she said this. <clears throat> she said, Dr. Nazar, I have forgiven you. I am not turning you into the law to get even or to seek revenge. She said, I'm turning you into the law because my desire for you is that you will see yourself for who you are and you will seek God's forgiveness and spend eternity in heaven because God's forgiveness is important so much more than mine. Isn't that amazing? For a young Christian girl to say, Dr. Nazareth, you have really messed up my life, and I've forgiven you, but that's not what I care about. I want you to be right with God, because that's what matters. Dear people, that is the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry that we're all called to. No matter how bad someone has hurt us or wounded us, to care enough about that person's soul to say, I'm concerned you may not be right with God out of what you've done. Because, see, the Scripture gives us that narrow window. If it isn't edifying, it's from that old bitter well, and it's sin. Forgiveness, compassion. This is why we must confront sin as a church. We, just to say, well, yeah, all these bad things happened, and I'm going to forgive. Dr. Keller says we're only going halfway there. I don't know. I have a tendency to agree with him. You see, unless we believe that grace covers unconfessed sins of the tongue, we must deal with sin in our lives. Repentance and amendment of life must go together. 
Someone asked the question a number of weeks or months ago, how do Christians get to the place where we can feel secure in our salvation while living in sin? So this morning I asked the question, what are some of those sins? And the answers, the, the answers I expected came first. Living in adultery, fornication, etc., etc. But I kept asking questions. Finally we started talking about, well, maybe bitterness and wrath and anger. And, and I want to challenge us as conservative Anabaptist people. We look out at the, at the world around us, and we say, well, they're, they're accepting divorce and remarriage in their church, or they're accepting transgender, they're accepting this, and they feel like grace covers it. Dear people, the Word of God speaks just as, no, I'll take it back. The Word of God, as I've studied it, speaks way more about sins of the tongue than it does sins of our private parts. So are we overlooking things in our churches? You see, the Bible doesn't make exceptions for sins of the tongue. It puts them in the same categories of the sins of immorality. And I, I chose the term sins of the body parts earlier in the message because I want us to get that point. We look at sins of the reproductive organs as terrible if churches allow it, but the Bible doesn't separate those sins from the sins of the tongue. It puts them in the same category as damning our souls to hell. One more thing Dr. Tim Keller said before he died. He died of pancreatic cancer, and he said, one of the, he, said he, he, he was sorry to see his death coming because he wanted to see his children and grandchildren grow up. But the thing that bothered him was, he said, all evangelical churches will eventually divide over the issue of self-assertion. And I thought that was interesting. His perception was, we're looking at the issues they're dividing over, that churches divide over. And he looked at it as a broad spectrum. He said, no, he said, churches divide over self-assertion and deference to humility and submission. And I think that's right, if you really think it through, whether it's the church dividing over steel wheels or rubber tires on the hay wagon or LGBT. It, there's still self-assertion in that equation. That's why we can't come together. I'm getting off track. All right. The book of Esther. I'm sorry for a little over time this morning. <laughs> Several months of study, I'm about done. In the book of Esther, we had Haman and Mordecai. And you know the story. Mordecai was a man of God. Haman was out to kill him, and Esther called this feast with King Herasarius, and they came into the first feast, and she said, well, she had something, but she'd come back to another feast. She came back in the second time, okay, the second feast, and she told King Herasarius that this vile man, Haman, is out to annihilate my people, including me, the queen. And the king was so upset that he got out and walked out in his garden for a while. Okay? When he came back in, where was Haman? Can anybody tell me where Haman was at? What do you think, Nathan? He was laying in bed with the queen, right? And the king come in and he said, in essence, on top of everything you're doing, you also have the audacity to violate the king in my, or the queen in my presence. So he had just learned what kind of a vile man he was. He went out and came back in, and, and in keeping with character, it wouldn't have been unusual for this man to be doing what Herasarius thought he was. 
So I say that to say this. Does my observations plus my perception equal fact and truth? Does my observations plus my perception equal fact and truth? Have I ever observed something, put together what I knew about it, and then talked about it as if I had all the facts and truth and found out everything? And then we have this restitution and all this stuff that needs to go if we're going to fix it right. I'm going to give you some stories. Read this in a young companion. A young Amish boy is coming home from work one night. The fuse went out on his buggy lights. He turned in, he made a right-hand turn in the first driveway he came to, tied his horse in the back corner of the parking lot, walked two blocks to the auto parts store, bought his fuses, put them back in his buggy, went back on the road and went home. Sometime later, the deacon of the church came and visited him and said, young man, we'll call him Elias, whatever. He said, I need to talk to you about going to the movie theater. He said, you were seen going down the road, you turned your lights off, you turned in the driveway of the movie theater, you parked your buggy in the back, and you were going a while. And he came to talk to him about attending movies on his way home from work. That weakened the whole church. Let's give you another scenario. Somebody's seen him, and they went to the church about it. Let's give you another scenario. Let's say that Uncle Eli's seen young Elias do that. He goes to young Elias the next day and says, Elias, you're a young man that I appreciate, and you have a lot of potential. And I don't think you would watch movies, but I seen you turn in there the other night. Can you tell me what happened? The two men were having an exchange. He said, Uncle Eli, thanks for caring about me. No, my fuse went out, and this is what happened. The relationship between that older man and that young man would have been strengthened. The rest of the church would never knew anything about it, and the whole church would have been better off. See? Instead of what happened. The whole church was weakened because of the loss of trust in what was happening there. All right, I'll give you another situation. This truly happened to me. A number of years ago, it was just like this spring, it was dry. We were irrigating. Muddy Creek becomes hallowed waters because we take turns. Or we don't, I don't have to because I have a war branch, but ones above us take turns irrigating. There was one man who was older, more financially well-to-do than the other men down the stream. He knew that. He chose not to irrigate that summer his crops. He let them go to waste. But he did set up his irrigation system. He set it up in his pasture field adjacent to his garden. And he would go out occasionally in the evening, he'd fire up his irrigation system, and he would hold the gun, and he would go back and forth like that, and he would water his dear wife's garden for 15 or 20 minutes, and he'd shut the system down, and it sat there in the pasture the rest of the time. Everybody driving up and down the road, seeing his irrigation system strung out in his pasture field. I knew what he was doing. I went past one evening and watched him do it. Somebody told me, he's sacrificing his crops for you guys downstream. All right. Someone downstream came to me and was upset. They said, you see what that hog's doing? He's irrigating his pastures, and the rest of us don't have enough water. Now, I knew the story. I want your response. What should I have done? What should I have done? Should I have defended the man or not? Should I just let it go? What do you think? What do you think, Lyndon? Should I have defended the man? Well, but this is truth versus untruth. You see, someone had driven down the road. They'd seen his irrigation system. They set it set up in his pasture. They had the evidence he was irrigating his pasture, right? So does my 
Observation plus my perception equal fact. No. Now I ask you another question. I, I said, look, that brother, I was a benefactor. Okay? I was a beneficiary because I was getting his water he wasn't using. But what if I didn't know the story? What if I'd driven by when he wasn't watering and I'd assumed the same thing and somebody downstream came to me and talked to me? I, I defended the brother. I said, look, he's a man of God. <laughs> it's good. He's not doing anything wrong. What if I didn't know the story? Now, this is where I want your attention. Should I have responded any differently? What if I, too, thought there was a possibility that he was taking our precious water? Should I have responded any differently? The answer is a resounding no. I still have a responsibility to defend that brother because he's a child of God. He's my brother in the Lord. God created him in his image. Christ died for him. And if he was the meanest, most heathen neighbor I have, he still needs salvation, and he still needs me to reach out to him and be his friend. It made no sense whether he was still in our water or whether he wasn't. He's a human being creating the likeness and image of God. Jesus died for him, and I have the same responsibility to stand up and defend him whether he's still in our water or whether he's not. Closing, Deuteronomy 19, 15. Deuteronomy 19 and verse. And let me say before we move on, I so often have been guilty with taking my observation plus my perception and seeing it as fact and finding out later I was so dead wrong. There's a saying, you only believe half of what you see and nothing you hear, and the older I get, the more I think that's true. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Back up to verse, yeah, 15. One witness shall not rise up against any man for any iniquity or any sin or any sin that he sinneth. One witness cannot bring an accusation against someone. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. If a false witness arise against any man, testify against him which is wrong. Then both the man between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord and before the priest and judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, and he that testified falsely against his brother, then shall he do unto him as he hath thought to have done to his brother. So shall thou put evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more such evil among you. If that I shall not, for that I shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and a hand for hand. Now, I realize that's Old Testament, but it's saying, if I bring an accusation against Brother Luke, and that accusation has consequences, and it's proven that Luke is innocent, and I brought the accusation without two or three witnesses, then I receive the punishment that would have went to Luke for his wrong. Now, we're no longer under the eye for the eye, tooth for tooth. But the requirement of two or three witnesses continues on, right on up into the New Covenant. You notice with Jesus, they had a problem. They had to keep getting witnesses at his trial, and they found two witnesses that agreed, and they agreed that he said he'd tear down the temple and build it again. And then they had something to crucify him on. 1 Timothy 5.19 Against an elder, or a brother in the church, or sister, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. See, that has not changed. 
The change of the covenant has not changed the requirement for two or three witnesses in order to receive an accusation against a fellow Christian. So I'm seeing the Scripture say, if you can't prove it by two or three witnesses, we should not receive an accusation. I'm going to conclude with Peter. 1 Peter 3. First Peter three and verse eight. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, nor railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are there and called to called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he which will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh you in a reason of hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you to everyone who encouraged me to study this subject. It's been one of the most deeply challenging subjects I've, I've studied for a long time. And another verse I was going to read in closing, but I won't, is Matthew 12, 34 through 37. It says, in the end, we either be condemned or we'll be justified by our words. It says, let, let no idle words proceed out of your mouth, because in the end, we'll either be justified or condemned by the words that proceed out of our mouth. May we all reach heaven and be serious about this aspect of sanctification that God has called us to. And may we not feel that grace covers unconfessed needs in the area of sins of the tongue. And we have a song.